Hello, I'm Greg, and welcome to a Talkback episode for Inappropriate Conversations number 107. The most recent Talkback episode was related to me speaking uh, truth to power or truth to religious authorities in this modern day and age by responding to a podcast recorded by a couple of men speaking from ignorance, in my opinion, about things related to sexual orientation and even things related to gender. So I spoke up about it. Uh, but this one, the very next episode after it, so that was 106, this was 107, both coming out originally in December of 2012. This one is me turning the focus back to myself. I described it at the time as a eulogy for homophobia. And the blurb from the original post went something like this. After speaking boldly on questions of sexual identity and unacceptable answers presented by the religious right, it's important to turn the other cheek. I do not speak as someone who has always stood up for the rights of non-heterosexuals. No, I understand homophobia because I have experienced it. I have felt that irrational fear. And even though I was much younger then, it's still important to put it to rest. I've recently seen a hashtag on Twitter called Leave It in 2012. Well, let's leave homophobia in 2012. Ashes to ashes. And to me, that's an interesting point, because 2012 was in many ways an extremely difficult year. Part of the reason that I made a commitment that I followed up to before the calendar year was over, to speak up and to speak up more boldly, was because of things that happened in 2012 uh, that were extremely negative. One very good example is the beginning part of August and the Chick-fil-A controversy, which now, a decade later, we're still dealing with some of those issues with the way this company, in my opinion, has invested in uh, programs and initiatives that would lead to citizens in African countries being put to death for who they love. And they may be less strident, they may be more quiet, they may use more creative accounting, but I don't think they're done playing that game yet. And yet, in August of 2012, when that company was publicly called on the carpet for their behavior, uh, probably what felt at the time like an overwhelming majority of American Christians sided with homophobia, sided with genocidal homophobia, in the method that Chick-fil-A was definitely using at the time and likely still using now, to support programs that would put people to death if they don't have the quote-unquote right orientation. So 2012 was in many ways an extremely dark year, and I was trying to do my part, having not re-listened to episode 107 any more than I listened to the uh, talkback I posted for 106 a week ago. I still haven't necessarily um, you know, revisited this, but I'm pretty sure my intent was a bit of a mea culpa, but in in the mindset of saying, hey, 2012 has been a dark time, let's turn the page, let's put it behind us, let's start anew, let's bury some things that need to be buried. And I still would say that in 2021, as a society, there's still some things we need to bury because, well, they need to be buried. One of the things I do vaguely remember about the recording of that episode was, of course, I remember the, the stories I was trying to tell. Moments where my behavior was not exemplary, where I, if I could go back and change my, my attitude, certainly my tone of voice, my use of terminology, I would. I, I interrupted that story kind of at a certain point where it stopped being about homophobia and started being about something else. And I did revisit it. 
And I think I will do a quick shout out to that other episode from the past in Inappropriate Conversations, in part because I don't have this one, uh, number 112, earmarked for a talkback episode. Now, you never know what's going to happen. Minds change, times change, schedules change. But at least at this point, if I look back at the very end of January 2013, um, and the episode that I called Saying No to Myself, I do not have that penciled in as a future talkback episode. The way to go back to that one, since it is uh, too early to be available on pod feeds, Spotify, elsewhere, is at the website at inappropriateconversations.org. Everything I've ever recorded from the perspective of an Inappropriate Conversations podcast or Walk the Earth or Talkback episodes is up and available at that website. Inappropriateconversations.com will also redirect. There's a right navigation at the time I'm recording this with an archive section that goes by month. The very last episode in the month for January 2013 was released January 31st, meaning I let seven or eight weeks go by between a podcast episode released in the very beginning of December 2012 and the rest of the story sort of coming up in the middle of a topic, one example of, say, three or more examples in a topic about uh, saying no and saying no in a sexual sense, saying no in a heterosexual sense, as a matter of fact. I worded it this way, that just another example of that is a follow-up story to a, a story partially relayed in Inappropriate Conversations 107, Eulogy for Homophobia. And it was just one of many where I was trying to dot in and sort of explain, hey, you know, there are times when any quote-unquote normal guy would have taken advantage of an offer of a sexual encounter, whether made overtly or directly or made indirectly or presumed to be true. And uh, that episode dealt with the sex side of the religion, sex, politics, and uh, drugs and rock and roll aspects of inappropriate conversations. It was uh, because the focus of the rest of that story was more on what could have been a heterosexual hookup that wasn't. I left it out of 107, where I really wanted to stay as close as I could to moments of behavior, you know, interacting with gay people, where I know I would do it differently now than I did then. And it only seemed right if I was going to criticize. Uh, pastors and religious podcasters and uh, lay leaders within churches for getting it so, so wrong that, you know what, when I was in high school and college, I certainly didn't get it right. Not all the time, not even most of the time. And some of that, maybe much of it, is related here in this particular talkback for Inappropriate Conversations number 107. Thanks for listening. Hello, I'm Greg. Let's have an inappropriate conversation about homophobia, or something I'm tempted to ironically call a eulogy for homophobia. inappropriate conversations on Stitcher Smart Radio. Stitcher allows you to listen to your favorite shows directly from your iPhone, Android phone, Kindle Fire, and beyond, on demand and on the go. 
If you don't have Stitcher, you can download it for free today at Stitcher.com or in the App Store. Stitcher, the smarter way to listen to radio. In addition to offering introductory words about Stitcher, this may be a good time to provide a little bit of introduction for inappropriate conversations itself. It's always possible that someone could be new to the show. And if someone had started in the last two or three episodes, they might get a different idea of what inappropriate conversations is typically about, if there is such a thing as typical. Uh, the shows here lately have been longer than I intend for them to be, frankly. And so, and also dealing perhaps a little bit more confrontationally with subject matter, particularly with subject matter related to issues like abortion and homosexuality. It's not that that's far off from what inappropriate conversations is about. The inappropriate conversations idea is to say we have not been served well, not, not well remotely by this notion that we need to keep topics like politics, religion, and sexuality separated from each other. Within the church, there's this idea that popular culture should be separated from Scripture and the parables that can be found there. Inappropriate conversations is about saying, we don't need to keep these things separated. We are better served if we mix them together. And maybe, just maybe, parables that will drive us forward in our society today to the right answers, to the right way to understand the mind and the heart of God or Jesus Christ, for that example, are being told in our popular culture. And we'd be very unwise. In fact, it might be to our own peril if we were to ignore those elements of our culture. So inappropriate conversations may step on some toes, certainly would have stepped on the toes of polite society 50 years ago. That's the point. But I wanted to emphasize a little you know, distinction, particularly based on last week's show, because this may be the point in time where it's important for me to say that I don't believe that I can, and I don't believe that I necessarily should, be identified as an ally. Now, the term ally is one that I've wrestled with for a year or so now, maybe longer, and it's this, this notion of straight people who support gay rights. What are that big, broad umbrella? You know, the simpler the statement, the more it can be read to mean. Well, then I think I obviously probably am an ally, and somewhere in the 90-minute program that I recorded responding to some of the things religious conservatives get wrong about both Scripture and gender and sexuality issues, I'm relatively sure that it's undeniable that I would qualify in their minds as an ally, and on some level, I shouldn't call that wrong. But that wasn't the point of what I was trying to say last week, and it's not necessarily the point of what I wanted to say this week either. My number one concern in the last two or three episodes of Inappropriate Conversations has been areas where I believe that Scripture has been polluted, perverted, misrepresented by people who claim to have an expertise in Scripture. In other words, rather than standing up for my homosexual friends, which I'm quite certain I was doing, I was more standing up for the Bible itself, from those who would use the Bible to say things the Bible does not say. Again, in the issue of abortion, when you come along in 1995 and rewrite certain passages of the, of the Bible, which you have proclaimed to be the inerrant word of God and, you know, incapable of error and unchangeable and unchanging and eternal, well, what are you rewriting it for? What are you putting words in Moses' mouth for? You know, it's wrong on so many levels, but it's especially wrong when you layer into it the hypocrisy of the people who are doing it, claiming that it's the very word of God and that God might in fact strike them dead for putting words in his mouth. And of course, last week, dealing with questions of gender and sexual identity and sexual orientation, for somebody to dredge up a couple of verses dealing with adultery and divorce and presume that that means that this is what Jesus has spoken on the issue of homosexuality, 
when the truth is Jesus either has not spoken emphatically on the issue, or what little he said and did during his lifetime spoke the opposite message. And if you want to get into the scriptural details of that and kind of dredge through the theology, well, I recorded a 90-minute episode last week. Feel free. The only reference I intend to make this week to Jesus Christ on this question of putting homophobia to rest, this, this notion of a eulogy, and I'll get into why that's ironic terminology in just a moment, would be a passage in the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus uses a strange term, not used anywhere else in the Bible, to say that anyone who calls his brother Raka is doomed to the fires of hell. We don't really know, biblically, what that word means. Again, there's no contextualization anywhere in the Bible. But there have been recent discoveries of ancient texts using the term, texts that you might describe as more entertainment or fiction or even pulp fiction, which lead you to believe that the term itself is roughly analogous or as close as we can get to analogous to calling somebody a faggot. So again, Jesus not really speaking emphatically on the question of sexual orientation anywhere in his ministry, despite what the tortured ramblings of certain televangelists may want you to believe. But he did say that anybody who uses references to homosexuality as a way of condemning people or as a, as a slur, the equivalent of an ethnic or racial slur, are in big, big trouble with him. And you wonder why the church doesn't spend as much energy into denouncing the Westboro Baptist Church and the Fred Phelps family for doing exactly what Jesus directly commanded us not to do in the Sermon on the Mount as they do with all the political maneuverings that represent just how deeply in the bedroom they are with the Republican Party and with GOP politics. It's this area where I have questions. So someone may come up and say, you know, Greg, you're selectively reading scripture again. We don't know what that word means. Well, do the research, do the study. If you come up with a better definition for the word, I'm all ears. But for now, the best definition we have tells us that Jesus denounces people who would hold up a sign at a funeral or anywhere else, that says God hates fags. You're putting words in Jesus' mouth, and you're putting the very words into his mouth that he warned us not to put into our own mouths. So if I'm speaking negatively about homophobia, here for a couple of episodes in a row, what does that mean about my own track record? And that's where I want to talk, just personally, in this inappropriate conversation, about reasons why I don't feel like I necessarily qualify to be called an ally. It's not that I would prefer to not take on the burden of that title. It's also being unworthy of the burden of that title. And to look into my past and say, hey, how did I get to where I am today? Because I didn't get there in the way that people might find convenient. I didn't get there over any questions of my own sexuality or my own sexual orientation. I've been happily with the same woman for 31 plus years now, and I will be delighted if I get 31 more. I don't have any you know, family members who've come out of the closet and therefore changed my political outlook on things because I love my family members more than I love my political ideology. And I worry a lot more about people who don't love their family members more than they love their political ideology, just to put that out there. This is not a judgment against people who change their mind on a certain political issue because a personal relationship causes them to look at things in a different way. No, if I was going to cast judgment on somebody, I would be more likely to judge them for not looking at things from a different perspective when that perspective is introduced to them through a loving relationship. But it's not that. Even in my personal life, those people that I've encountered, for the most part, I've encountered people where I've had the ability to hold 
any sort of personal relationship with homosexual friends, people who are friends now. But initially, I would have held those at an arm's distance. It either would have been through work, in which case there's a professional barrier there, or a boundary that I could put up professionally and say, hey, this is a workplace relationship. It doesn't have to be about what happens in your personal life. Or for that matter, even school. Talk about that in a minute. But I also feel that when you meet people online and you meet people in sort of online forum, online community, you don't necessarily have to be beholden to anything that holds up any sort of a facade. It doesn't have to be that we have to uh, be neighbors first, and that's the hat we wear with each other, or be coworkers first, or be uh, members of a civic organization first. When you're online, that's it. That's all you've got. It's an online thing, and there's something virtual about that friendship. But the virtual nature of the friendship also gives it the possibility in some ways to be more personal because it doesn't get defined by anything else in addition. And so I do have online friends, but I really believe that my online friendships have been formed not as a means of tearing down any homophobia, but as a result of the tearing down of homophobia actually having occurred. So the word eulogy has a couple of different meanings. And one of them I want to distance myself from, and the other one I want to embrace. A eulogy tends to mean two different things simultaneously. One, it's a loving tribute. It's a way of honoring. It's a way of conferring praise. That's not what I mean. The other one is that most of the time when you hear the word eulogy, you're hearing it in the context of a funeral. You're hearing it in the context of the thing or person which is being eulogized is now dead. And that really is the context that I'd like to present this with. Because as a privileged, and I use that word on purpose, those of you who've you know, interacted with me much on Facebook may connect the dots there on what I'm saying. But as someone who's been privileged to be essentially a white, male, middle-class, heterosexual, married person, I never really had to grapple in any fight to the death with something like homophobia. I could live with it. I could be a participant in it. I could be a resistor of it, but at no point was there going to have to be any necessary a result. I could walk in and out of situations where homophobia was involved because I had been protected and insulated by the privilege of who I am. Being a white male Protestant Christian who's married, these things mean that I don't have to answer to the question either of homophobia itself or what homophobia is a reaction to, what it's a fear of. But again, I don't want anything I've said last week or this week to make an impression that I somehow have come through this in any sort of saintly fashion. My hands are not clean. My ledger is not pure. I perhaps, in some ways, have some things to answer for. And as I walk through it, I want to try to share, again, very briefly, nowhere near at the same length that I've dealt with the scriptural questions that were raised in previous weeks. But I want to deal with some of the things that kind of brought me to the place I am, both in terms of questions that I have that maybe have still not been answered, and also in terms of you know, decisions that I either made or didn't make that I might do differently today. And the difference between how I reacted then and how I react now is homophobia. So I guess I'm dealing in some ways with my own homophobia. And the best answer I can come up with to start off would be my musical history. If you look at the different drummers over the course of all the inappropriate conversations that have been recorded and released so far, I think the, the dominant strain is music, popular music, but not exclusively pop, but 
music is a, a huge influencer on me. I'm the kind of person who memorizes lyrics. I'm the kind of person who will, you know, drop an album because I don't like the lyrics or pick up an album where the music is pedestrian at best because I do like the lyrics. So it isn't just the musicianship. It's sort of the poetry that's behind that musicianship, or in many cases, right out in front of it. And the first albums that I ever bought were the Alan Parsons Project, Tales of Mystery and Imagination by Edgar Allan Poe, clearly a good recording for somebody to pick up if you like popular music, especially electronic rock music, and you care a lot about words and lyrics, because each one of the songs was inspired by a poem or short story by Edgar Allan Poe. Around the same time, though, I picked up Queen, A Night at the Opera, and the original album that I bought back then, I think probably 1976, I still have the vinyl downstairs. I have since, of course, bought a CD copy, and I've also downloaded MP3s. And, but that original piece of vinyl is still with me. I cannot say the same thing for Elton John. One of the earliest albums that I remember buying was Elton John's Greatest Hits, the original Elton John's Greatest Hits, at a time before Volume 2 or 3 ever came out, and way before the concept of a box set even occurred to me. And I bought it, I think, primarily because some friends of mine down the road had it and liked it, and I'd heard not just the Greatest Hits album, but also some of the full-length albums, frankly even eight-track tapes, that had been released up until that point. Border Song was probably my favorite of the Elton John songs on the Greatest Hits collection, but it wasn't the only one. When I mentioned homophobia, maybe the first overt act of homophobia I've ever performed was this. At a time when I first realized what Elton John's sexual orientation was, or more specifically, the differences between him and me and my parents and other influential members of my life, I traded the album in to a used record store, divested myself of Elton John's music, and went with something different instead. I'm not sure what the exact trade was. It might have been out with Elton John and in with ZZ Top or something like that, but there was a clear trade involved. And there was no other good reason for that. If I'd been interrogated at that point in time, riding my bicycle up the street with the album in tow to trade in, I would have said that I liked, that I liked the music. I might have not said that. I might have said that I had reasons why I didn't like the music. But the honest answer would be, I like the music. I like the songs. Border Songs, still one of my favorite Elton John songs. A song, ironically, that has an element of you know, prejudice in it. But I was getting rid of it nevertheless because it just didn't seem like it was right for me. I was part of a culture, a Christian culture at the time, where there were choices that needed to be made. And this was a point in time where I was responding to that call by making that choice. Now... I was in elementary school at the time, fifth grade, sixth grade, a time of age where pre-puberty, but still aware of how important it was or what the consequences would be if I weren't a heterosexual male. So yeah, anything that you would listen to or anything that you would wear as clothing that would call that into question was probably going to be a big deal, probably going to be very risky. And if I wasn't clear about that before I got into the seventh grade in junior high school, I certainly got an object lesson about that in seventh grade in junior high school, because one of the guys that was in my grade, he came from a different elementary school. This was one of those points in time where three or four elementary schools all graduate through sixth grade, and the new group of seventh graders combines those classes together. It makes you a little bit vulnerable, because you stop being the top dog in your elementary school, at least in terms of your age and your grade, and you start being the youngest, least experienced, least familiar with the territory person in a new junior high school, where your allies are limited as well, because you, you have allies from one school, but you don't know any of the other kids in your same grade. 
one of my new seventh grade classmates was in my homeroom, meaning the very first class of the day. So the first time that I met anybody from a different elementary school than my own included kids from this class. And one of them began partway through the first month or so of junior high school carrying a purse to school with him. I don't know whether this was a brave choice. I don't know whether he was expressing his identity. I don't know whether this is something that came to him through his family, but I do know this. Other people attacked him verbally for this, and I didn't stand up for him even once. Now, you could say, well, you weren't part of the group that was attacking him. Yes, and that's true. It's also true that had I chosen to draw a line in the the sand and stand up for him, that would have had grave consequences for me as well. But I didn't do that. And the reason would have been fear. And what else do you call this particular kind of fear? There is a word we use for this particular kind of fear. And there's no reason to try to candy coat it. The word is homophobia. In this same span, between, say, 6th and 7th grade, I had a friend at church. We'll call her Kay. Not her name, but we'll call her Kay. Who had begun dating. I may have gone on one very casual, you know, take a girl to a party date in the sixth grade. And it would be a while in the seventh grade before I got into the swing of things there, too. I wasn't an active, you know, dating kind of person at that age. A boy, youngest boy in my graduating class from elementary school. So I was a little bit perhaps behind developmentally as far as that goes, or really on target for my age. But Kay was involved in dating and in sixth and particularly in seventh grade, going out with the same guy. And their relationship was fairly intense. They were going steady, which in my age would have been a a fairly big deal. Uh, To me, if I came home and announced to both my parents that I was going steady with the girl that I liked at the time, that would have been a major, a major conversation. Uh, My siblings would have been sent to their rooms or sent to bed early so that my parents and I could sit around the kitchen table and have a lengthy conversation about what that meant and why it was a big deal, and whether I should or shouldn't. It it was important. So Kay had an intensity to her relationship that when he broke up with her later, um, just about devastated her. I don't know whether her parents put her on suicide watch or not, but they probably did the uh, informal equivalent. She was, to say the least, despondent. And one of the things I find very confusing over the issues of sexual identity, sexual orientation, Not having that personal experience that I think really drives a lot of these inappropriate conversations. It's nothing if not me as a personal storyteller connecting sometimes news of the day, sometimes current events, but often bigger, broader topics to my own personal experience. Well, the closest I get to personal experience here is that Kay is now, in my my understanding, an out-of-the-closet lesbian, or at the very least a bisexual who's chosen a lesbian lifestyle. I have a very difficult time connecting that idea with the girl that I knew in sixth and seventh grade, who was devastated when her boyfriend broke up with her. Now, I don't believe that her boyfriend broke up with her over any sexual related issue. I think this is just pretty common. Kids of that age, trying on different identities, trying on different people, as a matter of fact. But if you'd asked me in high school what my thoughts were, I probably would have cited a lot more toward the line that I actively criticized in the most recent episode. I would have had a lot of sympathy for the perspective shared by certain evangelical Christian leaders that to some degree there does appear to be anecdotal evidence that some choices are being made and that some choices are involved. 
it is not at all hard to find homosexual people who have had heterosexual relationships in their past, and even those who do not consider themselves to be bisexual in the least. But I think it's important to go back to the idea of privilege and understand what it means to be somebody who is in a majority. In fact, in our culture, in a dominant majority, I have never had to pretend to play along with everyone else's identity because everyone else was different from me. I have either been like the majority or so different from everybody else from the perspective of my personal faith, my personal walk, that I'm more a creature from another planet and there was no sense in talking about finding anybody else who was quote unquote like me. So that combination of either not fitting in at all and there being no hope of it or not having to fit in because I was in the majority group. Well, what does it mean to say that Kay is a lesbian and that Kay's you know, most serious relationship that she ever had from a dating perspective in her entire lifetime at the time that I changed schools was with a guy? And make no mistake, in high school, I would have said that this meant that there was certainly some element of sexual confusion there. I was not yet old enough and mature enough in high school to have seen that difference between pre-puberty and post-puberty as in any way significant more than just sexually. To me, at that time, puberty would have simply been a list of things you could point to, primary and secondary sexual characteristics, physical things. And I wouldn't have connected the emotional changes that can come when you come to grasp with, quote unquote, who you really are. That answer to the question, who am I? Well, Kay had no more answered that question in sixth grade than she had answered the question of what size would her breasts be? Or how tall was she going to be? You know, she had not developed yet in that respect. But that confusion between knowing her as somebody who was dating a guy and really serious about him, really into him, and later finding out that she wasn't interested in men sexually at all, I don't know any other way to describe that other than to, to refer to it as a, a source of homophobia, or at least an example of confusion that could easily, if pushed, if put on the boil, could grow into that. So I look at these certain experiences in my life and say, here are areas where I was not supportive of people in the way that I would be if I was to call myself any sort of ally. I remember going to a party early in high school, you know, late enough that now I'm post-puberty, I'm dating in every sense of the word. And I was not in a relationship at that point in time with anybody. And in fact, the person that I went to the party with was a female friend. And maybe the last time in my life that I've ever had a female friend where the understanding or the terms, for want of a better word, of that friendship were intentionally poorly defined. In other words, both of us knew this was a friendship that could go in any direction. It could be casual. It could just be two people who know each other. It could be a truly uh, what I've called in the past a sacred friendship, or we could have ended up dating or hooking up at the end of that party. All bets were off. It was not clear who we were in relationship to each other. But we had gone to this party together. It was at a friend of a friend's house. And the friend of a friend, uh, I'll call him Scott, was pretty wealthy, lived in a very nice house. They had their own well-secluded fenced backyard with a swimming pool. The house itself was quite lovely in every conceivable way. And the uh, father in the family had his own liquor cabinet. And when the party started, we'd started off by drinking some Little Kings, some, some cream ale type beer type malted beverage. And we then moved over to the liquor cabinet and we were taking for our use at this party, his father's gin, because his father's gin was a clear drink. 
it felt like it would be easier to replace the gin with water or something else to get it back to its approximate height in the bottle and to you know, lessen the likelihood that Scott's father would recognize that we had taken his alcohol. But we used enough of it. And we began to get concerned that this part maybe wasn't the first party where we did this either, that it was going to be noticeable either from the look of the level of the liquid in the glass or from the taste of the liquid. The good thing was, though, that we knew that his father drank Tanqueray. And I liked, personally liked Tanqueray. It was one of my first experiences drinking you know, hard alcohol. And I had just enough money, you know, roughly a $20 bill, to buy maybe 750 milliliters of Tanqueray, which we could use primarily to replace the gin that we drunk, but also have some left over for personal use. None of us, however, had a fake ID, and I was personally in no mood to leave the party. This was a swimming party. So me and the woman, the you know, young woman that I was with were in swimsuits. We had been in the water. And the two people who had come to the party late, who had come to the party without swimsuits and were not interested in swimming, also had a fake ID. I don't remember their names. I don't remember whether they were older than Scott, but in the same high school, or whether they'd recently graduated from the same high school, but they knew the host of the party, and they were gay. So I gave these two gay male friends of the host of the party my $20 bill with very explicit instructions, that not just for my own reasons, but also to protect Scott, we needed to buy Tanqueray, as much as you can get. I mean, if the liquor store they go to has a high retail scheme, maybe we can only get half a liter, but whatever you can get, get Tanqueray. We'll use it to bail ourselves out. We'll fill the liquor bottle on his father's bar. And the rest, of course, I paid for it. The rest would be mine. They came back with no Tanqueray. They decided that that was simply not the right direction to go in for the party. It was wrong to drink that kind of alcohol. It wasn't stylish enough. didn't have any flair. I don't know what their reasons were. But they came back with four bottles of wine instead. And I'm using the term wine generously here. To my recollection... They came back with Boone's Farm Tickled Pink, Boone's Farm Strawberry Fields Forever, Lancer's Grape, and Andre Champagne. And my money made that purchase. I, I don't mind saying I was angry at this, and I think it's reasonable that somebody would be angry at this. Frankly, I was a little bit confused that Scott wasn't angry too, since the entire scheme was going to help him as much as me. But my anger with them was both because they you know, used my money in an inappropriate way, but I also don't think that I was very kind in any words I may have chosen about their sexual orientation. And I you know, violated what at the time was only a very young, very fledgling rule in my life about not drinking when angry. I was angry and I was drinking. And my decision was that the only way I could get back at these guys for betraying all of us in this way was to drink as much of that wine as possible. So after the beer, after the gin, after swimming... I drank very large quantities of all four of those wines. The results I'm imagining are not hard to predict. It involves throwing up. It involves throwing up while in the swimming pool, and luckily not inside the pool itself. Uh, that's a real you know, party crasher as well. Lots of people stop being outside at that point. I got hosed down. The sidewalk got hosed down. And if that were the end of it, it might have been okay, but it didn't. It was followed up with <clears throat> more being sick inside, understanding the true meaning of the word praying at the porcelain altar, and having something like 45 minutes to an hour of uninterrupted dry heaves afterward, where the only relief from the dry heaves was taking in some kind of a liquid, a water, a Sprite, a ginger ale, but then turning around and throwing that up as well. 
It was such a massive train wreck, fueled in no doubt whatsoever by anger and homophobia, that I had to be driven home. So my closest friend and the girl that I was with, that we all came together as a group of three, in fact, drove me to my house and quite literally poured me into my bed. This is the story. I will never have a story of drinking foolishness and alcoholic beverage mistakes as big as this one. Uh, this is, to me, this is the worst I've ever been. And the difference with this story and maybe being at somebody's bachelor party or being in a fraternity sorority kind of an event and going along with the crowd, the difference was it was fueled by anger and the nature of that anger was homophobia. That is probably the furthest that I've been toward using angry and inappropriate words toward people, whether to their face or behind their back. But it wasn't the only experience that I had. Later on in college, I ended up with a gay roommate. We ended up you know, fighting often, not over anything related to sexuality or relationships, but just over the use of personal space. This person, while on the one hand, fairly neat and organized in how he kept his stuff, wasn't above you know, messing with things that belonged to me. One day, he, as part of a practical joke that people were playing on the dormitory floor, took one of my album covers, filled it up with uh, shaving cream, shoved the open end of the album cover under somebody's door, and stepped on it to where, essentially, without being inside their dorm room at all, just from underneath the door, you could basically you know, coat their uh, walk space with shaving cream using this technique. He thought it was okay because I had two copies of the album Elvis Costello, Armed Forces, and therefore I didn't need the other one. And frankly, he just got lucky that just without having any music knowledge of his own, he happened to pick the one that was the American release and not the rare British original album cover, which cost me quite a bit to get and would have been almost impossible to replace. And over that, I basically was extremely angry and a little bit confused as well, because, again, here's a person openly gay, vowing to be gay, but spent most of his time with one of the girls from the sister dorm and their relationship, while not ostensibly sexual, was certainly very familiar and very open. And it would not have surprised me if sexual activities had occurred indirectly between them, where perhaps um, things of a masturbatory nature were occurring or something along those lines. She certainly was intimately familiar with all of his lovers in a way that I wouldn't have been as his roommate. And the confusing aspect of saying I didn't understand what was the nature of their relationship with each other based on the limited knowledge that I brought in as being able to process any of this information. The main reason that I sought revenge against this individual was truly over the album cover. I wanted to send a message to say, hey, this is my stuff, it's not your stuff, leave it the hell alone, or I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to retaliate. And I think I can honestly say the retaliation had nothing whatsoever to do with homophobia. But on the other hand, nothing related to a sexual orientation stopped me either. The problem was I couldn't figure out how to extract revenge. There didn't seem to be any good way that I could hit this guy where it hurt. And so one day, he was in class all afternoon. I know he'd be gone for hours. And I had a few afternoon classes, too, and I had the morning and lunchtime completely open. So I told myself that the best way to make sure I got revenge on this guy was to write the note first, you know, sort of championing my retaliation and claiming the victory and kind of using it as a warning that I've done this to you. And if, if you ever mess with my stuff again, it's going to be even worse. You've, this is the tip of the iceberg, but it's going to hit you where it hurts. I wrote that kind of note, left it on his bed, went to lunch. And during the course of the lunch hour, something distracted me, something I wasn't expecting, and I ended up not getting back to the dorm room, having to go straight from lunch to classes, and never actually doing anything as an act of retaliation. 
So in other words, I wrote the note, but I didn't follow through on anything that the note promised I'd done, which was vague anyway because I hadn't figured out what I was going to do in the first place. When I got back shortly before dinner that night, my roommate had clearly freaked completely out. He had, during the intervening hours when I was gone, washed every single piece of clothing in his closet. He had done the sheets. He had moved every piece of furniture. He had swept, mopped, dusted, and waxed the entire place. He was trying to find whatever I'd done and trying to deal with it. And the inability to find exactly what it was had assumed the worst. He'd gone out and bought new shampoo, new soap, new toothpaste, new brush, new comb, because he was certain that something somewhere was going to get him, and it was going to be ugly. It was going to be an act of unparalleled vengeance, just as I'd promised that it was. And ironically, I engaged in perhaps the best prank I'd ever tried to engage in just by being too foolish and too distracted to actually pull a prank in the first place. It did mark essentially a turning point in this roommate relationship. And eventually I got what I want, which was for him to move into a different dorm room, perhaps even a private dorm room, and me to be able for the first time in my college freshman experience to tell the university who my next roommate would be. The luck of the draw experience had not gone particularly well for me. I had gone really from a first roommate where you don't know anybody, you're just paired up with somebody. I go to my first two classes between 7.30 and 9.30 in the morning. He had gone to his first class at 8.30 in the morning. And by the time we both got back to the dorms after that, he had already packed up all of his stuff. He was from a rural part of the state and he was moving back home to the farm. He was done. I tried as a good roommate, barely knowing this guy to talk him out of it, to say, hey, what's the problem? You probably ought to give it more of a chance than just one day, than just one class. He said, I can't. I went to the first class, and you know how many books I'm going to have to buy? Three books. I'm going to have to buy three books for one class, but I have five classes. That's 15 books. I have not read 15 books my entire life. I don't think there's going to be any way I can possibly read 15 books in the next three months. And he dropped out. And he disappeared from college life completely, gone forever. So, luck of the draw happened again. The roommate I had this time was older than me. He was old enough to be a graduate student, but he wasn't a graduate student. He was still completing his undergraduate degree, having transferred at some point from at least one college in the state of Indiana. And here he was, several states away from home, and trying to both finish a degree that he'd been working on for years and take full advantage of the college life. So this was the first time I'd ever experienced the, if there's a tie hanging on the door, don't come in. Um, my roommate is getting busy. He's getting lucky with somebody he picked up in the dorms. The problem that I had with this guy was the tie was always on the door, but he was never getting very lucky. Uh, he had presumed that there were certain days of the week that I should just spend more time in the library, but he wasn't getting the action out of it. And he wasn't being as free with his stories about the action as, say, V8 Nate would have been to make him a good roommate. He brought very little to the party, and he disrupted my schedule. One day, I was in one of those situations where I'd gotten back from school, gotten back from dinner, and the tie was on the door. And convinced as I was that he was probably in there alone again and just left it and forgot about it, I went out for a walk. So I just went on a walk for the university. The university campus was wonderful for this. I went to one of those schools with what we truly called a walking campus. And it was brilliant in so many ways. I mean, not only could you walk from any of the dormitory buildings to any of the classrooms, therefore not needing a car to get from one class to the other, but you also were close enough to shops and grocery stores that if you didn't buy too much at the grocery store, you could go to the grocery store, buy some things, and carry them on foot back to your dormitory or back to your fraternity or back to your apartment. 
The bars were also close as well, which meant that you didn't have any risk of drinking and driving because any place that you might go that would serve you alcohol, unless you intentionally went to some place that was too far away and forced you to make a designated driver kind of arrangement, you pretty much could walk to the bars as well. So on this particular night, I'm walking the campus, which is, again, a very enjoyable experience. It was not too cold outside. Uh, it wasn't warm at all. I could, could take a, as many loops around the university as I felt like taking. And at one point on the way, coming back toward where my dormitory was, I passed the education classroom. And the education classroom in the very front had very tall trees that had clearly been there for decades. But on the sides, it had trees that had been recently planted, saplings, if you will. And underneath one of those trees in this side alley between two of the uh, education buildings was a couple that had not bothered to make their way all the way back to their dormitory room or their apartment. Partially clothed, partially enough to enable them to have sexual intercourse on the lawn, they were there having sexual intercourse on the lawn. And when I got back to my dorm room, I told the funny story of this couple just deciding that they'd waited as long as they were going to wait and the you know an additional 50 or 60 yards they needed to get to either her dorm room or his dorm room wasn't going to happen. And they were there right on the education lawn. My roommate tells me that he'd been alone the whole night anyway. And it dawned on me that this couple out there in front of students, professors, God, and everybody was getting more action than the jackass who'd put the tie on the door. I basically drew the line in the sand right there and said, listen, you're out of here. I've had it. Find somebody to switch rooms with you. I don't even care who it is and make the swap. I'm done. I wasn't smart enough at that time to have designated who I wanted my new roommate to be. And it might not have been possible in this situation to engineer some sort of three room trade. So I ended up with the roommate with the quote unquote girlfriend who was nevertheless gay and fairly confrontational about it. And more to the point, very willing to mess with all of my stuff. And so I think it was at that point that experience with him and learning a little bit later as I got to the end of college that his situation might have been very different from anything I'd experienced before and that it was probably wrong for me to be too judgmental of him having not experienced life from his perspective that I began to become what I would describe as a completely agnostic to the issue of someone else's orientation. Now, there's a couple of things that drove that and homophobia is still perhaps one of them. I would not have asked this guy for a lot of details because I didn't want to know the details. And to decide going forward that you're going to treat everybody as if you're indifferent to what their sexual orientations will be, while being a step up from being somebody who's genuinely homophobic, is not a step forward toward genuine honesty either in dealing with people as they really are. But the, the two things fueling that was, first, I was in a fairly secure situation. By that point, I'd met the woman that I later married, and we were a couple on campus, no longer separated by a year's distance of being in two different schools. So my situation was pretty much nailed down. And I expanded my circle of friends greatly. And that was aided, of course, by my decision that I didn't really care what the backstory was. If somebody wanted to share their story, I'd listen. But I didn't have any prerequisites that people had to meet in order to be a friend of mine. I didn't care if you had the same religious values. Didn't care if you were in the same major. Didn't care what your sexual orientation was, much less whether it was consistent with my own. And that helped in lots of ways. But it occurred to me only just a couple of years ago, and I may be generous in my storytelling here, that one of the people that was part of that circle of friends, really a very close friend, close enough to part of the wedding that my wife and I later had, it occurred to me that, you know what, now that I know a little bit more about the world, now that I've experienced a few more things, I wonder if this friend of ours might have been gay. 
And when I shared that with other people in our circle of friends, they were like, duh, <laughs> what you didn't know. And the truth is, well, yeah, duh, I didn't know. Was not smart enough to know, wasn't sensitive enough to know, wasn't part of the circle of trust enough to know. And one key reason behind that might obviously be homophobia. None of us have a clean slate here. A great number of us, especially those of us who are part of the privilege of being part of the majority, whether that's a majority by race or by creed or by sexual orientation, may have people in our world who have a story to tell that they're not going to tell us because we haven't earned the hearing of it. And maybe the reason we haven't earned hearing their story is because of homophobia. Now, I've obviously expressed the idea that there's a lot of degrees here. You know, I'm not burning a cross in somebody's front yard and would have drawn the line there. Didn't stand up for the guy who brought a purse to school with him, but I certainly wouldn't have wanted any part or been in any way benignly indifferent to somebody attacking the person. So there's degrees here. But in some ways, being that indifferent, being that agnostic to something as central to a person as their identity, well, you know, that's that's no less wrong. It's only less wrong from the measure of degree. It's not less wrong from the perspective of being close enough to right to call it okay. And that's the difference. If you're a Christian as I am, and you feel like it's important for you to share your faith, to live your faith, to walk with Jesus, one of the key initial steps there is looking at how Jesus, as recorded in Scripture, did things. I mean, I referred angrily in last week's inappropriate conversation to these individuals on their podcast, the podcast that I reviewed on the show, not doing it Jesus's way. And maybe I didn't explain that well enough. Jesus's way was to go into places where the Pharisees said he should not go because sinners were there and to interact with those people, to talk with them, to ask them questions, to answer their questions, to put his hands upon them in a healing way, but also in a loving way, to provide contact for the first time for some of them, because people would have been terrified of laying their hands upon somebody who, not only somebody with leprosy, where skin-to-skin -skin contact could at times transmit the disease, but even things like deafness and blindness, where they would be afraid, there would be superstition about the evil spirit leaving that person and coming into me. He touched people in a way that had everything to do with the opposite of all of these types of fears we're discussing, whether they be fears of disease, fear of God's judgment, or fear of their sexual practice or their sexual preference. In other words, Jesus met people where they were. He communicated with them genuinely, and he responded to them as they were. He did not begin by telling them they needed to pretend to be something they weren't. He didn't respond to people who put on airs, who put on a show, who put on a front. He instead responded to people who said, here I am. Here's what I'm dealing with. What can be done? What can you do for me? What can I do for you in some cases? The lepers who came back after being healed when the others didn't. And it's in this context that I find modern religious right style, politically active Christianity, so incredibly wanting. But I don't criticize them from the perspective of them being homophobic and me not. I criticize them from the perspective of me being sensitive and aware of the fact that there is a distance between me and the people that we call allies, and that if I'm in the same bucket with those people, in the sense that I think we should treat everyone equally, that we should not draw lines 
between us. But that still is a huge distance between me and other people who are more homophobic simply because they're in a greater state of denial or they're holding on, whether wittingly or unwittingly, to a greater amount of privilege. Hi, I'm Tony Pucci, and I lost my sister Jenny to ALS. Songs for Jenny is a charity CD for ALS patient care and research. Otherwise known as Lou Gehrig's disease, ALS is a disease without a cure. The Songs for Jenny CD features my music along with guest vocalists from around the world. All proceeds from the sale of the Songs for Jenny CD will be donated to the ALS Association of America, Minnesota Chapter. To find out more and to purchase the CD, please visit www.songsforjenny.com. There is a level at which Elton John probably has a right to feel a little hard done by that I at one point owned a copy on vinyl of Elton John's Greatest Hits and traded it in. And then later on went back to buy it again when I kind of came to my senses and realized that my relationship with the music and my relationship with the musician were two different things. And that even if somebody were to make a compelling case that Elton John was a bad person because of things he may or may not do in his personal life, that didn't change the message of songs like Goodbye Yellow Brick Road or Border Song, and that something about that message was going to transcend anything about the, the artist's behavior, so to speak, or even the artist's identity. But Elton John probably has a right to say, hey, you know, your first album you ever bought was Queen. You would have had the same issues with Freddie Mercury. Why are you trading in my music and you holding on to that Queen album? Why did you expand the Queen collection to include the album after it, A Day at the Races, and the album before it, uh, Sheer Heart Attack, and at no point get upset about songs like Lily of the Valley or Good Old Fashioned Lover Boy, and yet allow you know, something like Crocodile Rock to rub me the wrong way? I don't have an explanation for that, except to say that perhaps on some level, it's a perfect indicator of why Freddie Mercury is a different drummer. I don't think I know of any band who's released three albums back-to-back that I hold in the same esteem or higher than Sheer Heart Attack, A Night at the Opera, and A Day at the Races. And a lot of the reason that Queen is the great band that they are, and they produced the brilliant music they did, is the front man of the group, Freddie Mercury. Now, I'm willing to acknowledge that Brian May is as talented a guitarist as you're going to find in rock music, and that Mercury couldn't have accomplished what he did without... May and Taylor and uh, Deacon playing their instruments as well as they did. But I'm going to single out Freddie Mercury, particularly on this topic of being aware of homophobia, but having an inconsistent history, because the same response that led me to ditch my Elton John album didn't lead me to get rid of the Queen album. Now, let's be honest. You open up a copy of A Night at the Opera or A Day at the Races and just look at the artwork back then when there were you know vinyl albums that folded out. There's no mistaking that there's something quite different, and flamboyant is perhaps the best word for it, about Freddie Mercury. Freddie Mercury, while at times in his life being in relationships with both women and men, describing himself as bisexual, nevertheless would have you know, triggered the same sort of response that the religious right would have had about Elton John or other people, where if sexual orientation is a reason to stop listening to music, how in the world did Queen survive the cut? I was listening to Queen before I was listening to Led Zeppelin or Black Sabbath. So it wasn't as if I didn't have the ability to trade them for other bands that I would later discover. I just didn't. And I'm quite certain that there is no single performer, at least by picture alone, by image alone, that my parents would have been more uncomfortable with in my album collection than Freddie Mercury. 
So is it just you know, Mercury's talent overcoming any sort of residual homophobia I may have been feeling? I don't know. That's a possibility. Or maybe it's a possibility that maybe Mercury was simply a precursor to the attitude that I would take later, that if the talent is there, I don't really care about the rest. And that may be a good enough way of looking at it. Mercury was born shortly after World War II on the island of Zanzibar, off the coast of Africa, part of a Persian family that later immigrated to Great Britain during a time of uh, persecution and political unrest. Uh, in his early life, Freddie Mercury spent a lot of years in India, playing piano on a regular basis, taking a great deal of lessons, and developing the kind of musical talent that would later serve him well in college education. He became aware of rock and roll, and in part, the band Smile, through the musicians uh, Brian May and John Taylor, who would later become part of Queen. And from that relationship, when they formed the band, they put together a group that called what I would think obvious references to you know, groups like Led Zeppelin and Jimi Hendrix. Mercury was a fan of Jimi Hendrix, and in some ways brought the same kind of flamboyant showmanship to his work that Hendrix did, uh, to some degree with the piano, but more through his singing. A performance of Queen in concert has been described by those who've seen it, I'm not among them, as theatrical. And the few times I've seen footage on television, either of Queen tours or perhaps the Queen performance on Live Aid, theatrical is a very good word for it. I've already mentioned the three Queen albums that I hold in the highest esteem. I never actually bought a copy of News of the World, which would have been the next album, or Jazz. And the main reason was that I felt that the quality was not the same, or perhaps on some level, enough of a musical change had occurred that I wasn't necessarily in a hurry to get the albums. And the singles from those albums were played on radio with such regularity that you didn't really need to own the album to hear the songs. That is not how I would describe A Day at the Races. With the, perhaps the sole exception of the song Somebody to Love, you weren't hearing any of those songs on the radio. It didn't get anywhere near the press that A Night at the Opera did, or even Sheer Heart Attack. So that radio play helped me resist the need of having a copy of News of the World in my collection. The Wikipedia art article makes the interesting observation that if you look at Queen's Greatest Hits album, 10 of the 17 songs were written by Mercury. Bohemian Rhapsody, Seven Seas of Rye, Killer Queen, Somebody to Love, Good Old Fashioned Lover Boy, We Are the Champions, Bicycle Race, Don't Stop Me Now, Crazy Little Thing Called Love, Play the Game. In some ways, some of these songs are even more poignant now that Mercury is gone. There hasn't been a performer, and I don't believe that there will be a performer, who comes along to capture the niche created in rock music by Freddie Mercury. No one's been able to take his place, even though some have toured with the remaining members of the band and, and done revival work. There just isn't anybody with that, the range in terms of the, the musical voice and the musical skill, the showmanship, and simply just being a, just a unique person. You get somebody born on an island off the coast of Africa of essentially Middle Eastern heritage. I mean, in some corners of the press, uh, the British press have referred to him as Britain's greatest Asian rock star. So he, he has this combination of things that you're not likely to see repeated again. But also, when you plumb the depths of the, the albums themselves and look at other works primarily penned by Mercury, because most of the songs by Queen during this era had individual songwriting credits. They would come together as a group, bringing the songs that they had written, and then hone them from there. He is a superstar, both in songwriting and in performance. And somehow, 
at an age when I was very sensitive, very aware of the risks of being somebody who would stand up for homosexual people, or at least yeah, it wasn't enough to be indifferent. Indifferent was dangerous in junior high school. You needed to be against, you needed to be opposed. You needed to know which side to be on. And more often than not, I tried to be on the quote unquote right side, which in you know retrospect is the wrong side today, I would say. Somehow Freddie Mercury survived in my album collection and in my fandom. Now, I didn't have a poster on the wall. I had posters from Led Zeppelin, Black Sabbath, uh, Yes, nothing from Queen. And again, that may be a fair indication of how was I able to draw the line. I think I was able to draw the line on just being indifferent. And at that age, at that stage of my life, indifference to homosexuality was the best I could do. I'm hopeful that in some of the inappropriate conversations I've recorded, I've done a good enough job of communicating that the time for that indifference is over. And in late April of this year, I wrote a blog post on the Inappropriate Conversations site, www.inappropriateconversations.org. It's dated April 30th of 2012, or you can get there by clicking on the category for articles and just isolating the blog posts from the podcast entries. I kind of deal head on with this whole question of allies there. And where's this line between somebody who's got strong opinions about the rights of others, but doesn't necessarily want or feel a need to be inside any one camp that I've got credentials inside evangelical Christianity that I might not, if I took a side for sake of argument, but at least in the case of Freddie Mercury, there's something to be said about where the line was at that age in my life, where my indifference to his sexuality, did not stop me from listening to his music, didn't stop me from buying Queen albums, didn't stop me from from being genuinely saddened at his death and supportive of those who were heartbroken and critical of those who expressed negative and homophobic ideas. But the funny thing is, how can you be indifferent to someone as flamboyant, as out as Freddie Mercury? I don't have an answer to that question. And the fact that I don't have that answer is probably why this is such an ironic eulogy to homophobia. Masters of None. HJ from Masters of None inviting you to check us out. We're the comedy podcast that doesn't suck, except for art. And Mike. And art. Totally. Dicks. Check us out at mastersofnoneshow.com. If you'd like to put some dialogue into this conversation yourself, I can be reached at IC underscore Greg at hotmail.com and show notes are enabled at www.inappropriateconversations.org. Thanks for listening.
music by Kevin McLeod. This show is part of the Pride 48 Network. Find more shows over at pride48.com.